Hey everyone, before we start this podcast, we need to add a quick disclaimer. We're taking on a real hot topic in today's episode. If you think training science is heavily debated, come spend some time in the nutrition world. Outside of Vela News, I wear another hat myself as the editor of a nutritional science website. I get to see every day how heavily contested nutrition science can be. I certainly have my biases, and I try to keep them out of our podcast, which is part of why we invited a guest to cover nutrition today. Kaylee and I enjoyed having Dr. Golia on our show. He's done a lot to help many people, including elite cyclists. My personal biases aside, I think the practical suggestions he gives would help most, if not all, of our listeners be healthier, stronger athletes. That being said, we have to be true to who we are. I'm putting on my nutrition hat for a minute. I can't fully agree with a fair amount of the science used to explain his advice. I think if we asked Dr. Golia, he'd agree with what I'm about to say. He was not trying to give hard science, but being more metaphoric to make the advice digestible. No pun intended. We've given you some hard science podcasts in the past and pride ourselves in trying to give you the best science. For this one, we recommend you focus more on the suggestions and overall approach. And with that, let's get fast. Welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. That base season mode where people don't care about how fast you go, that's a time to, to go to food jail and lose your weight. I mean, why would you work on losing weight when you're in competition, in that competition platform? Like when you are racing every weekend or every other weekend, why would you restrict your foods to such a point that you're on low sugar patterns or low fat patterns to try to drop your weight? When in fact, at that point, you should be on a competition food program that enhances performance and promotes recovery and reduces inflammation. So the best time to lose your weight is in base season, which is counterintuitive for most endurance athletes. Hello and welcome to Fast Talk. I'm Kaylee Fretz, senior editor here at Vela News, sitting across the table from Trevor Connor, our longtime training columnist. Today, we'll talk about losing weight, how to do it properly and safely, when to focus on dropping pounds, and why a diet solution for you is likely to look very different from that of your riding buddies. We'll chat with Dr. Philip Golia, a nutritionist to the stars. He's worked with Jennifer Aniston, Khloe Kardashian, Chris Pratt, and perhaps slightly more relevant to our listeners here, Canadel Drapak's Phil Guyman. He definitely knows bikes. Just a small warning, Dr. Golia joins us from Crete via Skype, so the audio quality does drop off occasionally, although you can still tell what he's saying. Let's make you faster. The question that we're, we want to ask you today is really about getting down to race weight. I think this is something that almost every one of our listeners is really interested in. So I guess really the, the first thing we want to ask you or hit you with is what is your overall recommendation for getting down to race weight? and how? Because I know a lot of people use techniques that, that wouldn't be considered healthy. What is the yeah. healthy way to get to, to a good race weight by the, by the spring, by March? Other than eating tomatoes and some tuna fish and cig- and smoking cigarettes, yes. uh, so so this is how I see it with with cyclists and uh, and triathletes as well. You know, any endurance sport athlete that there are basically three levels to the season. There's your competition portion of the season. There is your base season where you're working up into miles and training strategies to to prepare for the, your race or performance season. And then there's that deconditioned point uh, of the season. So let's take deconditioning first. Your race season is over and now you decondition. And the purpose of deconditioning is to create a conditioning platform so that you can condition at a higher level and really break through your ceiling of your most highest level of conditioning from your previous season. Like if you don't decondition, it's very hard to condition above that ceiling that you're at and create momentum and push through. So deconditioning is like a three-week process of doing absolutely nothing and really turning into a couch potato, right. so to speak, you know, and not worrying about anything and just like chilling. Some people do it longer. Some people do it to, for four and five weeks. Uh, you know, I, because of my mentality and the way my brain works, I can barely do it for two weeks. You know, <laughs> I, I just get, <laughs> I get that upset about it. It's horrible. But after you decondition, then you're in this base season mode. And within base season, so many cyclists and triathletes as well, they think, well, 
I can still eat anything I want as long as I put in some long, slow miles and start to work into my interval training patterns and my strength patterns uh, and some time in the gym. And that's not necessarily true. Well, I was going to say, I see that all the time. I have athletes do these big volume training weeks and they think, oh, great, I can have pizza every night. I'm going to drop weight. And then at the end yeah. of the week, they're four pounds heavier. No, they can't, they can't do that. That base season mode where people don't care about how fast you go, that's a time to, to go to food jail and lose your weight. I mean, why would you work on losing weight when you're in competition, in that competition platform? Like when you are racing every weekend or every other weekend, why would you restrict your foods to such a point that you're on low sugar patterns or low fat patterns to try to drop your weight? When in fact, at that point, you should be on a competition food program that enhances performance and promotes recovery and reduces inflammation. So the best time to lose your weight isn't base season, which is counterintuitive for most endurance athletes. So it's really, you want, to, whatever you're going to race at, you want to be hitting that weight by your first race. And then in the, during the season, you're just saying, maintain the weight. Absolutely. And, and in fact, because the competition season can be so grueling, chances are you'll drop a few more pounds anyways. But ideally, let's say you want your race weight to be 160 pounds. So in, towards the end of base season, go find 155 and come up five pounds as you move into your race season so that you feel strong and nutritionally supported. And at that point, you've also figured out your inflammatory factors. You know what foods promote your inflammation. You're knowing how to reduce them in between your, your uh, race weekends or your stage races. And you've got a much more strategic foundation to forecast your performance. So take it a step back. When you said identify your inflammatory foods, a lot of our listeners might not know what you mean by that. So what's an inflammatory food and how do you identify it? Well, there's, so there are some basic inflammatory foods. So anything that is yeast and mold and sugar bound is number one. So yeast, mold, sugar, gluten, refined sugars, those are the things you generally stay away from. And an example of that would be bread breads, muffins, bagels, hoit breads, sandwich breads. Anything that is yeast and sugar bound will promote inflammation. Rather than choosing multi-ingredient carbohydrates like your bread breads, muffins, bagels, hoi breads, choose single-ingredient carbohydrates like potatoes, rice, yams, oatmeal, oat flakes, oat puffs. Look at your carbohydrate and ask it, how many ingredients are in you? And if they tell you more than one, don't eat it. As well, dairy. Dairy is, dairy is highly inflammatory. So dairy, like if you line up 20 of the best athletes in the world, you say to them, hey, you guys, I came here to take your dairy order. You wouldn't get one because dairy is like eating moderately hard phlegm, <laughs> if you know what I mean. So, so, so nothing, I have never heard that description, but I love it. Leave, leave, come on. It's like, very little come on. It's moderately like hard phlegm. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Is that? So no, inappropriate. No. I'm completely unapologetic. I can't help it. <laughs> you know, actually, I, I, I read this study or book a while ago, and I can't even remember his name now, but it was the last true native, uh, untouched Native American. It was a story about when he, he lived in the hills of California, and he came down to San Francisco and became westernized, and they kept a record of how he did. The first time he had milk as an adult was when in his 50s, and he hated it. And he had a very limited vocabulary. So what he kept saying was, it, it ruins my singing voice. And as sure. he learned more English, he basically said it just made, his, it made him really phlegmy and he didn't like it. So it's really interesting. That you're, that's the way you're describing it. Yeah, yeah no, it's, uh, it, it's like eating phlegm for sure. So, I mean, when you think about it, it, it adversely affects the utilization of oxygen, which is why asthmatics, generally speaking, don't consume any dairy. And it, and it promotes gastric heat, which is about the last thing you want on a bicycle. Otherwise, you'd be farting all over yourself. <laughs> uh, so, so, I mean, we, we try to manage gastric heat in, in endurance sport, which is why we stay away from high fructose corn syrups and things like that. So, right. again, the inflammatory guys, no yeast, no mold, no dairy, no gluten. Going back to, so you were talking about great place to drop weight is in the base season. So we have an athlete now, let's mm -hmm. say they want to take off 15, 20 pounds. What are the, the general strategies for them? Is it simply a matter of calories in, calories out, step on the scale frequently, and if the weight's not going down, start skipping dessert? Or are there well, that's, better strategies they can take and healthier strategies? That's a good question. You know, most, most folks think it's calories in, calories out, but that's making an assumption that all calories are created equally. 
when, when in fact they're not. Like, for instance, me, because I'm fat and protein efficient, I utilize a fat calorie much differently than I utilize a sugar calorie or carbohydrate calorie as an energy source. Uh, one spikes and drops me, and then one, like fat, provides me with a long chain release of energy. So all calories are not created equally. We don't utilize them equally as well uh, as it relates to your macronutrients, fats, proteins, and carbohydrates. So it's not necessarily calories in, calories out. In fact, most athletes have problems losing weight because they're under eating. How about that? Okay, that one you have to explain. All right. So uh, you guys are, are, are coaches and familiar with nutrition. What's the definition of a calorie? I am not a coach or Cocktail. a <laughs> <for> nutrition. <laughs> no, Come on, man. So, I am a I am a reporter. A, a so my, my my whole job is to find people who know what they're talking about, like yourself. If I remember correctly from uh, from high school science, a calorie has something to do with. Uh, oh God! <laughs> See, right, hold on. So, I'm, I'm thinking back to so, bio here. Give me a hint. Give me on. a hint. All right, a calorie is a unit of measure right. of heat. Heat, that's right. We used to we, so, we heated up water or something like that, right? Specifically the number it's the amount of energy required to heat. Sorry. It's amount there, I've heard there's a couple different definitions but they're all basically the same. It's the amount of heat or energy that's required to heat a liter of water 1 degree Celsius. Right. 1 degree. There you go. So we can we can say calories are heat energy units, right? Yep. Uh, just so right. you know, I threw that so, one at Kaylee because I did my master's in nutrition, I so I, I, I knew the answer. I love that. That's outstanding. So if calories are heat energy units, then let's make a distinction about metabolism. Is, it, is metabolism something that's fast or slow, or is it hot or cold? Well, so personally, whenever somebody says I have a slow metabolism or a, fat, a fast metabolism, that's... Um, one of my soapboxes. I always say there, there's no such a thing as a faster or slow metabolism. Metabolism is just the, the, the net sum of the energy that you burn over the course of a day or the number right. of calories so you burn. So burning means heat, right? Burning means you're creating a heat pattern. If metabolism is a function of heat, if a calorie is a heat energy unit, then fat only converts to energy in a calorically hot environment. So if you undereat, metabolically you are cool. So you'll hoard fat and waste muscle. So all the training that we do, all the workouts, can we consider that a catabolic event? Absolutely. All right. So, so your training is not something that changes physique. It's something that breaks down tissue. It's a catabolic event. And as athletes, we want to do that. We want to create that catabolic event. But then we want to stick a wedge in it and stop it because it's a highly inflammatory event. Agreed? Agreed. Yep. All right. So we've created this inflammatory catabolic event. Now we want to stick a wedge in it and stop it. So how do you do that? You stop it with your nutrition, with your hydration, and your recovery like sleep. So firstly, nutritionally speaking, if there aren't enough calories in that program to promote pair. If there's not enough heat to generate the use of fat as an energy source while training, you will remain catabolic and waste that tissue that you just broke down. So yes, you lose weight, but you just lost the wrong stuff. How does an amateur find the balance there? I mean, is are there other indicators? Are there indicators to the sort of the lay person that you're you're wasting away in the wrong way? Well, let's just say you you know you're you're back into your training mode, so to speak, and you notice that as each week passes, you're more sore. And as you're doing a, a 20 minute FTP or you're doing a standard climb that you do, you know, every Wednesday morning, your time isn't improving; it's getting worse. Then chances are you've got a caloric problem. <laughs> it started to waste muscle, and you, and you there you are scratching your head, and you say, "Damn, I'm five pounds down," but I. I I'm not any faster up the hill. So what have you just lost? A lot of riders think that pros regularly practice extreme weight loss programs, but that's not really the case. In fact, slow and careful seems to be the approach, as 2015 U.S. National Road Champion Matthew Boucher tells us. So do it slowly, just a little bit. Oh, yeah, for sure. You don't, don't crash diet. That doesn't help you. I'd you might cut weight quick, but then your body rebounds and 
you either put more weight on or you, you can't train as well and then you come to a race and you just aren't any good so it's important to do uh, it slowly and be consistent with it. Now, do you keep your weight pretty much the same year round or do you uh, let it come up a little in the off season and then bring it back? Um, I stay pretty consistent. Um, if I have a big goal race I try and try and cut a little bit but generally I, it's just a personal preference not to uh, not to put weight on and take it off is I don't like to do that so right and I I think the the theme I'm hearing from you and tell me if this is correct is if you're trying to drop the weight the best strategy is not the calorie counter, especially because if you, you download one onto your phone and then you plug in the two slices of pizza you just ate, you're going to cry because that was your total day's calories. So what right. you're saying is you're better if you eat right, if you eat healthy, if you eat the right foods, then all that non-metabolic, relatively useless fat that you've stored is going to start coming off somewhat naturally and you don't need to watch the calories. And maybe just in the base season... Just be a little bit careful. Don't overconsume. Maybe cut back a little bit, and the weight's going to come off. Is that what you're saying? For sure, for sure. In base season, in, in base season, and in in your competition season, watch your nutrient patterns and know what each know what each nutrient is responsible for doing. So, if you feel like you're inflamed or fatigued, uh, like you're you're kind of pedaling behind your circle, you know, and you're losing water, chances are your protein patterns are too low. So remind yourself, the best time to repair muscle tissue is when your body is at rest. Are you consuming enough protein at night? And if you look down at your plate and you see a hand-sized amount of protein, which is essentially equal to about four ounces of of protein, like a chicken breast, then chances are you're eating like a, a little anorexic female. So you should probably double your pro- – like Phil Gaiman. The guy consumes almost 16 ounces of protein at dinner. That's really? post-cooking. That's almost 20 ounces before cooking. Yeah. And it works. It's not a small amount of protein, and it works. When I used to travel to the races with my team, they, of course, the night before the, the races would do the giant pasta party with all the uh, – pasta sauce on it and go okay that's what i have to eat i have to have two pounds of this and then they'd look at me and i'd have this giant piece of salmon with vegetables and they, they just couldn't understand know. me they could not get it yeah dude you you, you have hit you, you have hit the holy grail like i'm so i'm so glad you said that because now you're promoting a deep REM sleep your body will release more growth hormone you'll sleep deeper in that stage four sleep you'll wake up more refreshed so if you are active then remember that your performance in your physique is 80% kitchen, 20% gym, or 20% on the road. And that sounds so weird to say, but, but your endurance capacity, your strength capacity, and your ability to recover is all built in the kitchen. It's not built in the gym. So let's look at this for a second. I was a, I was a Mr. North America as a bodybuilder. My off-season weight was 315 pounds. My competition weight was 265. My metabolic temperature was 280 degrees. I was eating 7,000 calories a day. The more muscle tissue you have, the more food you need. So it's not a function of calories in, calories out anymore. It's a function of establishing a heat pattern to support the amount of activity that you create on a daily and weekly basis. And then think about this. Here's a good question. If you were if you were anabolic, if you are creating muscular density, as each week passes, should you increase your food? Uh I would assume so. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so then so then as so so then as people lose weight, as athletes even lose weight, why do they eat less? Hmm. Mm. 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 athletes are stupid mm. <laughs> that's the best i can think of <laughs> so, so i mean Trev, I, i'm trying i'm trying as to... a coach I, you, you must see it all the time athletes will, will come to you and they're digging a hole like they're digging a big hole and you say man you need to take a week off because you're digging a hole you won't be able to get out of is digging a hole over training or is it under eating? Uh, what you said at the very beginning really resonates about the drop weight in the, in the base season and then 
really focus on being healthy during the season. That's the biggest thing that I've noticed. In the Bay season, if you're a little tired, if you can't win the sprints, who cares in January? But I do Ryan find shit. What's that? Who gives a shit? Right. No one cares about that. Right. But during the season, yes, if an athlete starts under eating, they can't handle the training because that's when the training starts to get really intense. As you pointed out, it's very catabolic. That's when they actually start breaking down muscle tissue. And by this point, they're out of the weight room, so there's no anabolic effect going on. They start losing the muscle tissue. They start losing strength. The immune system starts breaking down, and that's when they burn out. And I agree with you completely. Often it's just, look, get off the bike for a couple of days. Go eat. Go eat. And they start feeling right. better. And they start feeling better. But, but most folks, including athletes, have a very adversarial relationship with food. And if asked, they'll say, yeah, food makes you fat. you got to train your ass off, and you really need to limit your calories. And that's the, the general status quo out there. That's what people really believe, athletes or not. So to present this type of information, I think, is huge. Don't be afraid to eat your food. And use your food as a catalyst to increase training intensity and muscular strength. Because ultimately, you want to drop the stuff. You want to drop weight that is non-functional tissue. And that's body fat. That's fat. Fat is non-functional tissue that's your functional tissue or muscle has to tote around. So if I can get you to keep your muscle and you can stay anabolic, like promoting tissue repair, and drop eight pounds of fat, I've increased your wattage per kilogram, and I've made your bike eight pounds lighter, which is wicked expensive if you try to do it with a mechanic. <laughs> right. So is this why, I mean, I just, just purely anecdotally, I mean, obviously I spend a lot of time around a lot of different pros and and, and have for some time it seems like they're getting skinnier and skinnier and skinnier. And the, 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 you know, for a long time, we always sort of assumed if you lost too much weight, you're going to end up losing power. It doesn't seem to be the case right. anymore. Is this because we have come into sort of new understandings of nutrition and how to lose weight properly? Or how, I mean, how are these guys doing it? I mean, there's, there's, there's always these sort of, there's uh there's banter on Twitter and things like that. Like, how is it possible for these guys to lose so much weight without losing power? Is it, I mean, well, is it, is it legitimately possible? It is cer certainly legitimately possible. I mean, I see it every day in, in my clinic when I work with the elite endurance athletes we have running through there. So if you are more savvy with your foods, then you know that you will create this propulsion effect, this, this, this effect of fat utilization that is consistent throughout your day and throughout your week. But keep in mind that, that these athletes, if, nutritionally coached correctly on a weekly basis if they're adding muscle density to their to their body composition then the calories are increasing in 10 or 12 percent increments every seven to ten days so you can figure that a food program a true correct metabolic food program has the life of about seven days maybe 10 days max and within that period if you're really on your game you will drop 1.3 percent body fat within that seven to ten days but the end at the end of that that food program you're on will match your body composition and you will not change. So something has gone on within that seven to 10 days. So what has gone on? Well, I've dropped body fat. I've reduced non-functional tissue by say 1.3%. I have increased my lean mass, maybe even just half a pound. But even if it is only half a pound or, or a pound of, of lean tissue, that requires more calories in. So bump your calories in 10 or 12% increments, and then you'll create an elevated fat. You'll drop body fat again across the course of the next seven days, and you'll increase lean tissue again. So to maintain that anabolic event and make caloric shifts every seven to 10 days is really, really important. And then consistent patterning is important. So we know through like the kind of the science of nutrition and what we know about metabolism is that it takes 48 hours to establish a heat pattern. Like when you you're given a food program, it takes your body 48 hours to understand it and figure out that caloric heat at the end of those 48 hours. Then you can start counting off your timeline or the days of the week. So you start this thing and the first two days were a no brainer. You were just so focused that, that wild horses couldn't drag you off your food. So day one is great. Day two is great. Day three is great. But let's say, in day four, moods, events, something happens and you mismanage your caloric pattern or your meal pattern. If you mismanage your meal pattern, you mismanage calories. If you mismanage calories, you mismanage heat. 
if you mismanage heat, metabolism cools and you lose that day that you're in for the efficient use of fat. So there's one day lost. Now it takes you 48 hours to recreate your pattern again. So how many days did you just lose? You lost three. If you do that twice a week, you've lost six. The week is gone. So maintain your food pattern. Create consistent caloric structures within your day. Take one date night meal a week to eat whatever you want. Get it out of your system. And then create these heat patterns in the other five-day increments. We asked Phil Guyman about weight loss, and he agreed that it's far more complex than the lowest number on your scale. I think cyclists have a tendency, or the racers that I know have a tendency to see what the last, the, the lowest weight that they've ever been, and then decide that's their race weight, and they're just constantly chasing it, which kind of a, a smarter way to do it is to look at, is to sort of log your weight over, like do your best, eat healthy, all that stuff, and log your weight over a period of years, and then you kind of have a record of when your best results took place, what your weight was, and that's probably the time that you that you won a big race or, or whatever you, you felt your best will be, that that's what your race weight should be. Um, so you kind of like backtrack it from there, and again, like that varies time of year, so like in... In March, I come out of a you know a good winter of base training, and it's kind of you know not traveling, and I'm 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 efficient, whatever. Uh, you know, I'll be 148 pounds, and then this time of year where it's hot out, you're frying every day. It's kind of it's more like 152. Right. Um, but you know the the body composition is the same or, or less as the season progresses. I mean, like you you eat right, you exercise. I think it's. I think it's 80% diet, honestly. When when you're over, you know, 10%, when you're when you really have weight to lose, it's it's almost all what you eat. Um, so you see a nutritionist, you keep it down, and I mean the the goal, like you know, I don't, I'm not sure what it is for for men or for women, but it's, I'm sure you can look it up. It's it's for men, you don't want to go really less than five percent. Um, I've I've been down there. It's kind of not planned, but it kind of just happens to you, and it's like you can. You might feel good at four and a half percent, but you're going to get sick. Right. Um, so and so once once you get to four and a half percent, if you kind of start a stage race that way or something, or, or a long training block, like there's going to be a day where you where you don't eat enough breakfast and you kind of blow up because there's nothing in there. And but but five to but but five you know, percent, I always I feel good. Um, I'm energized, whatever. It's sort of I mean it's a crucial, you know day of, of fat that you can sort of live off of if, if things go, you know, if you get an early break at a race or you have a massive training ride, you get lost, something like that. Above and beyond that, determine your metabolic structure. I'm not sure if, if there are many athletes out there that really understand that there are three metabolic types that exist. So either someone is fat and protein efficient or carbohydrate efficient or dual. These three structures were discovered years ago, back in the early 80s. Uh, through the decay of this rice diet at Duke University. Uh, Duke had started a food program called the Rice Diet, and it melt, uh, met with a horrible death as people started to gain weight and, uh, and promote inflammatory factors because of uh, high sugar patterns or high rice patterns. That Back in the early 80s, Pritkin was huge on the West Coast with a high-carbohydrate food plan. So Pritkin was huge on sugars, but he was working with an elderly population for coronary care that were not very active. So when when the rice diet came into play in the early 80s, there was a segment of that population that were, was on the rice diet that was trying to lose weight and manage coronary care. They were actually gaining weight and falling asleep. And it's because they didn't utilize sugars effectively as an energy source. In fact, it was inflaming them and promoting diabetic responses uh, like elevated trigs and elevated HbA1c. So what they had within their lipid profiles were very high HDLs, very low LDLs, like this great capacity to utilize fat as an energy source, but a very poor capacity to utilize sugars. And nobody was looking at lipid profiles at the time. So ultimately, lipid profiles were assessed. They saw that this population that was consuming rice and high sugars was actually inflamed. So they pulled them off the rice. So they gave them fatty fish and peanut butter. And lo and behold, they started losing weight like crazy. So. There is more than one metabolic structure. For, for instance, if you are a cyclist and there's diabetes in your family background, why would you be on a high-carbohydrate food plan? just doesn't make sense. Uh, if, you're an endur if you're an endurance athlete or anybody, endurance athlete or anybody, and 
there's a, there's a coronary history of plaque buildup in your family history. Why would you choose a high-fat, high-protein food program for yourself? These things are genetic. They don't skip, uh, they don't skip generations, so they're generational by nature. So you have to look at your family background, look at your lipid profile, and determine what nutrients you best use. For instance, me, I'm fat and protein efficient. If I eat more than one cup of rice a day, I want to shoot postal workers and take naps. I'm out of my mind. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, so this is really experimental. Um, each person just needs to, to try and see where their profile is at. Yeah, I mean, even you can even ask your doctor for your lipid profile, and you can look at that the reading within your lipids, and you can say, wow, look at my HDLs. Athletes want to be 70 and over, 35 is zero, and my HDLs are, are 75. What a great capacity I have to utilize fat and protein effectively as an energy source. Wow, look at my LDLs, my bad guy fats. They're substantially under 100. Man, I transport fat really well. Oops, look at my triglyceride levels. They're, they're 175, they're 200. They're, regardless, they're over 110. Wow, I really don't have that much of an ability to utilize sugar so well. So, you know, I am more fat and protein efficient than I am sugar efficient. Uh, the reverse could be true. The reverse could be that you have very low HDLs, this low capacity to transport fat, fat effectively, very high LDLs, like an LDL of, of over 160. So you store fat easily, but maybe a very low triglyceride level, which is a, a sugar management indicator. So maybe a triglyceride level of under 110, maybe it's 80, maybe it's 70, maybe it's 40. So a high capacity to utilize sugars effectively. So now you've got somebody that is carbohydrate deficient. So it's, there's a lot of numbers and a lot of uh, acronyms uh, thrown around here. For, for sort of your average amateur athlete, are there resources online? Are there, I mean, should they all go find uh, themselves a professional nutritionist? Or are there ways to do this on your own? Well, there are certainly ways to do it on your own. I mean, you can look through our website uh, at tfcnutrition.com. You can... Uh, uh, Google anything about lipid profile assessment and metabolic typing and good information will pop up for you. But for example, let's just say, let's say your foods are clean and you've chosen a high carbohydrate food plan and you still don't feel like you're on your game and you're bonking and crashing and you're falling apart midway through your rides or training. Though you're eating healthfully, the question is, are you eating healthfully in the right macronutrient patterns that best suit you? So now you need to take a look at your research and maybe redefine and reassess your foods. One of the ways they can go on and assess metabolic structure, there is a questionnaire on uh, the gplans.com okay. website. So I have interactive nutrition. You can log on to gplans.com. It'll take you through your entire metabolic typing questionnaire. And if you have blood work available... You can type in your blood work and push, it pops up, it gives you your metabolic structure. Very cool. Now, are there, I was about to ask you for, for general strategies or approaches or foods that people should eat, but I have a feeling your answer is going to be every individual is different. But are there any sort of recommendations you can give? And, and by the way, Phil Guyman gave me a bit of an outline of, of the diet that you have, Mom, which sound, sounded fascinating. Um, and I don't know if Phil, you want to share that at all, but, well, um, Phil was, Phil was eating hot dogs in the first minute, for Christ's sake. I mean, you know, <laughs> Phil had a big leap, a big leap nutritionally, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we can share Phil's food program. Absolutely. But most importantly, it's like initially it's like the understanding of what each macronutrient is and what it does. So proteins. When you think protein, just think meat with eyes. That's just the simplest way to break it out. So chicken, fish, steak, turkey, eggs, something that can bite you or run after you or swim or has a heartbeat. That's a protein and it's for tissue repair. And then there's carbohydrate. Carbohydrate is a sugar. So anything that isn't protein or a fat, and fats are only found in proteins and nuts and seeds. So if it's not a, if it's not a protein which contains your fats, then everything else is a sugar. And I, I have to interject here because I hear this all the time. The number uh, people need to understand that when they think carbohydrates, they think breads, they think candy, things like that. But people also need to understand that fruits and vegetables are also carbohydrate sources. They are primarily well, lettuce leaf is sugar, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not it's not a fat and it's not a protein, right? So it, it, it's a sugar. So yeah, your lettuce leaf is a sugar. Your fruits are sugar. Your potatoes are sugar. Your breads are sugar. If it's not me with eyes, it's sugar <laughs> or not. <laughs> they try to dumb you down. What can I tell you? 
<laughs> I actually just wish we had a chalkboard right here so that we could just put a little flow chart on there. Does it have eyes? Yes, it's a protein. Does it, have eyes? Does it not have eyes? Okay. <laughs> Move to the next question. Sort of go here. <laughs> yep. So, so, uh, so it's under, under it's important to understand the the distinction between those macronutrients, and then once you do, then you say, all right, well, when do I need these things? So in the beginning of your day, to kind of start your day, generally speaking, regardless of what me metabolic structure you have, like just talking general nutrition, it's important to get a little bit of each thing in. So I would say like an ideal meal for breakfast would be a one-ingredient starch, like an oatmeal or a, or a cup of rice or a baked potato or a yam even with a fat and protein grouping, like a couple of eggs, maybe even three, and then a simple sugar, like a fruit. Uh, a mid-morning snack might be a combination of sugar and fat, like a fruit and 12 almonds or a fruit and a tablespoon of almond butter. Lunch would have a starch in it, like a, like a potato or rice or yam or sweet potato. You know, one portion, an eight-ounce yam or one cup of rice with four to six ounces of protein, like chicken, fish, steak, turkey, eggs, and then some kind of vegetable for digestion. Two afternoon snacks, both sugar and fat. So, you know, like a fruit and 12 almonds and a fruit and 12 almonds and then dinner. And then you got to ask yourself, like, when is the best time to repair muscle tissue? And that's when your body's not doing anything. That's when your body's at rest. So the best time to consume your protein, your largest protein pattern is at night. And then vegetables for digestion. If you consume a yam or a potato or rice or pasta at night, it's an energy source food. It's not like you're going to run a marathon after dinner. You're going to go to bed. So you're kind of taking up protein. So. Again, well, well, what kind of proteins to consume at night? So you've got a choice. You've got poultry. You've got red meat. You've got fish, seafood. The red meat and fish choices are best consumed in the evening. Chicken, when you really take a look at it, is a moderately low-fat meat, and after that, it's benign. It doesn't bring much to the performance table. So if you're going to have it, have it at lunch. But the red meats offer a high hematocrit level. They're high iron. So like a lean red meat, like a filet or flank steak or a hanger steak. It's using fish, the omega fish oils, the essential fatty acids in that fish promote a deep REM sleep. So your body releases or finds a deep REM sleep, releases more growth hormone. You burn more fat, repair more muscle tissue. Your metabolism is more efficient. And omegas for years are known to reduce inflammation. So it's, highly anti, it's a highly anti-inflammatory beneficial protein. So choose your surf and turf patterns at night, like a fatty fish, like salmon, sea bass, black cod, arctic char, or your steak. Create an A-B pattern. So one night is fish, one night is a lean steak, like a filet or flank steak, and alternate them back and forth. Okay. And then we actually use this thing called a mash after dinner. All, all the endurance athletes have decided to call it mash because nobody knows what the, what the hell to call this thing. But it is, is essentially a one-ingredient starch, like a potato or rice or yam or one cup of oatmeal or one cup of shredded wheat even, with one cup of applesauce dumped on top of it, with one tablespoon of almond butter dumped on top of that, with one tablespoon of jam dumped on top of that. Crunch it all up, eat it, go to bed. <laughs> That does I know, sound it very tasty. Weird, but it tastes good. <laughs> mash. And then when you wake up in the morning, have your mash again, assuming you've got a big ass ride. Have your mash again and add two eggs to it. Consume that mash and your two eggs two hours prior to your ride so that you've got full digestion. And then climb on the bike. And that gets you the first hardcore 40 minutes of ride time. And then at that point, it's a sugar-only, like initiate a sugar-only pattern that gets you about 30 minutes of ride time. And then all your intermediate ride patterns are sugar-fat groupings. So figure out what sugar-fat snack you like, be it a Bonk Breaker bar or the Justin's Flavored Nut Butter Packs, which are fantastic. The uh, Chocolate Hazelnut is the, the most liquidy of them all. And use these sugar-fat patterns in your intermediate portions of your ride, because if you were to use sugars only, you'll outpedal your body's ability to, to absorb the amount of carbohydrate or glucose you need to maintain your pedaling and your wattage output. At some point, you'll overpedal your ability to absorb sugar, and then you'll promote all this gastric heat, and then you'll fall off your bike and bonk. When... So, so, and these sugar fat patterns are done in like 40 minute increments. So every 40 minutes you hit a sugar fat, sugar fat, sugar fat. When you know that you're an hour out from the barn, it's sugar caffeine. 
And perhaps the best sugar caffeine grouping out there is a product called Second Surge. It's an agave-based, so it's going to be a low heat pattern-based uh, gel. And the gel is very liquidy. It's not like a pasty gel. It's almost syrupy. It goes down in a heartbeat. Uh, so it's sugar caffeine an hour out from the barn, another sugar caffeine when you're 30 minutes out from the barn, and then you're home. But if you're to use caffeine early on in your ride, because caffeine is known for sugar transport or the increased capacity of sugar transport, you risk bonking at a faster rate as you mistime your sugar input. In fact, one of the best sugars out there to use uh, above and beyond something like a honey stinger, for example, is a new company called Untapped, which is just grade B maple syrup in a little tear-off pack. But that maple syrup is fantastic because it's uh, it's a very dense mineral base and it's low glycemic. It's not highly sweet. Phil definitely doesn't eat hot dogs anymore. He's been working with Dr. Golia for a while now and has found an approach to nutrition that has allowed him to perform at his best. He shares a few of their secrets, including a recovery shake that he had to learn to love. But uh, so it, I mean, it's, it's real basic. Like he'll he'll give you a meal plan, and it starts with you know for eggs and spinach for breakfast or eggs and kale for breakfast and then you know carbs depending on how long I ride and then a recovery shake after the ride and then a chicken breast and then for dinner a steak or a fish and then you know for dessert like some applesauce with almond butter in it like so we'll have this sort of little meal plan that it's something that like it's things that I like that are all healthy combination of stuff and when I'm at home for a certain period I I I I'm religious with, with that. I, I kind of just eat that every day. I stick to his plan, um, which is, you know, it's just drinking a lot of water, eating a lot of greens and a lot of lean meats and proteins and, you know, good fats. Your snack is cashews. It's not a Snickers bar. Um, there's nothing, there's nothing fancy about it. Um, and I go into his office every week or two and I'll jump on a scale and I'll do a skin fold test and we'll see if we're up or down and then we'll, We'll make an adjustment for the next two weeks. It's very, it's very systematic, and it, but it's very obvious. It's just you have to do it. Right. I don't think there's any like, there's, there's no tips that anyone's invented. It's just, you know, don't, don't pound all the pasta. You don't need it. Um. Yeah, honestly, like just waking up in the morning and chugging a liter of water was probably a big, a big improvement for me. It's just it kind of. I mean, water accelerates whatever, and obviously it's good for you, but I think it, it sort of fills you up first thing as well, so you don't go to you know, a box of cereal. So there's all these myths out there that it is unbelievable dedication for pros, and it's a struggle every day, and they go out with family and have to avoid the desserts, avoid anything that they enjoy. Is that the case for you, or do you find that it, it's pretty manageable sticking to the, the diet that you're given? Um, yes and no. I mean, any, I've, I've read, and this, this applies to like, I mean, this is like an Alcoholics and Anonymous thing, but any like breaking a habit or creating a habit takes 90 days where typically we're like psychologically you have to force it. And then it's just sort of part of your life. So that, that nutritionist I work with after rides, I, he had me do this kale shake and it's, it's, uh, it's kale or spinach um, almond butter, uh, beet, uh, what else is in there? And then apple juice to fill the cracks, you know, apple juice all the way up. So it's like a big cup of, of green red sludge. And, uh, and I hated it and I forced it down and I forced it down. And now with an hour to go on my ride, I'm craving that stupid kale shake. <laughs> and, and it's just a pattern. So it's like when I, when I go out to dinner, you know, if I go out with my friend's back in, in LA or something, they have beers and, and I might have a glass of red wine. And but it's not like if if your friends are, are ordering pizzas and then making fun of you for getting a salad, then they're not really good friends, are they? Fair enough. Um <laughs> I don't I don't consider it ever like I don't know, that's that's never been my problem. I don't consider it a war and I don't really know any guys who like don't have a pizza. I'm in, I'm in Girona. I've been going out to dinner every night with, with Mike Woods and Peel Ryan and Andrew Tulansky and got a big lamb shank the other day and we got the, yeah, it's every word. It's normal. You're normal. Talk about the, the ride, getting to the end of the ride. Uh, Phil was telling us about the, the shake, the recovery shake that you were having him do. So you can tell us a little bit about uh, good, 
the good re- recovery yeah. nutrition, particularly that shake. Well, the the recovery drink is actually a pre and post drink. So then you think, okay, well, what else can I use? Like, how can I create something that'll that'll give me a a, a better edge nutritionally? So use metabolic sugars. So deribose, L-glutamine. Uh, you mix these in a a base of sugar for transport, like maybe some unfiltered apple juice. So you might take six ounces of unfiltered apple juice. Uh, a tablespoon of deribose, a tablespoon of L-glutamine, uh, one-eighth of a teaspoon of cinnamon. Um, we use sports legs in there as well, a calcium-magnesium mix. We empty six sports legs into this little cocktail. Uh, we also use a product called Beet Elite in there to promote uh, nitric oxide um, and then citrulline malate and a product called Pre-Race by First Endurance. Uh, and depending on how caffeine-sensitive you are, you start with one third of the scoop and Maybe work your way up one full scoop of that pre-race powder. Uh, and then you shake that sucker all up and drink it about 30 minutes before you climb on your bike. Again, make sure you have full digestion and uh, you are ready to roll. If you want a bit more uh, punch to that, you can add a tablespoon of molasses to it. Uh, but that is one hell of a, a pre-training cocktail. Uh, and you've got to get on that bike after you take that thing about 30 minutes, you better be on your bike. Otherwise you'll be folding a lot of laundry or cleaning baseboards or something. <laughs> Way too a lot much of energy. energy. And then post ride, post ride, you do the exact same thing, but you don't use the pre-race powder. Uh, but it's highly metabolic and it, prom- it promotes huge recovery. It's, it stuffs a ton of sugar back into your system post ride. And, it, and, uh, and then pre ride, it loads you. I imagine it's really the kind of, it's the kind of thing you want to use before every single bike ride so that you, you know, your body very much gets used to it. Uh, and, exactly. and knows what to expect. Exactly. Oh, never change anything on race day. Dear God, you know, you keep it all the same, man. I mean, no, your body has an expectation of your nutrient patterns and whatever supplements you've decided to take. So don't change a damn thing. You know, treat treat every ride as if it's a race prep ride. As, I say, as, a, as a native Vermonter, I do love that idea, actually. And we used to do that before it was packaged. It's 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 a it's Ted King's little project, is it not? I, I don't know. Is that is is that who started uh, Untapped? I know he's it is involved. A great product. Yeah, I know he's involved, and, th- and there's some brothers in. Uh, I think they're in Vermont, not New Hampshire. Uh, but anyway, somewhere up in New England, and, and they're they're getting that thing going. And uh, yeah, I mean, we used to yeah, when well, I when I was racing mountain bikes in high school in out of Burlington, Vermont. We used to do that all the time, and turns out we were uh, about a decade and a half ahead of the game, tw- twenty years ahead of the game. No, so. I mean, I, I remember cycling through Europe. I used to use in the beginning of uh, when I started. My day of cycling, I would use sugar cubes just to get glucose in me. Yep. But then, then I found brown sugar cubes and started using that and was even a little bit better. And then uh, wrestling, as a wrestler, I would actually use um, maple candy, hmm. which was really funny. you know. And then I, I kind of put it all together just recently over the last year or so when Untapped really showed up on the market. But not so much showing up in the market. It was very, still very unfamiliar for so many athletes. And I started using that, and I thought, you know, this is great. I mean, it's maple syrup, and it has so many benefits as it relates to electrolytes and minerals and just the low glycemic index of it. Mm-hmm. So I started just flipping it to my athletes, and they totally dug it. But it's certainly a product that needs to be promoted more, without a doubt. Yeah, I've been a huge fan of it uh both in terms of flavor and it seems to work. So I, I never yeah. really understood why, but uh, now, now I know. <laughs> yeah, that's no, great. And then, you know, so many athletes will start their rides on sugar caffeine and don't, and they can't understand why they feel like they're a little nutritionally behind their pedal stroke. And it's because that caffeine is pushing all, uh, an, an amount of sugar that's more than necessary uh, through the bloodstream. And then they, then they bonk. Makes me figure out why. I'm like, God damn, I have all my food, but I must have mistimed it. <laughs> and then, you know, it promotes dehydration as well, that amount of caffeine. So now your your sweat rate elevates and your central nervous system spikes. So it's never caffeine in the beginning of the ride. It's always caffeine at the end of the ride when you need that central nervous system spike and you want to reduce the feeling of pain. <laughs> so. All right. That's some awesome stuff. Thank you. Um, we're going to, I guess, sort of wrap this up with uh, get some as quick as we can, uh, like sort of weight loss tips and tricks. Uh, I know it's always really hard to to distill 
this exceptionally complicated information down to like, you know, here's five things you can do. But is there a way for you to do that for us? Yeah, I think. Hey, hey Trev, do you, do you want to talk about hydration real quick, though? Like water consumption? Yeah, that'd be you great. Know how most folks, you know, how most folks start off with like, well, so you've got two, two water bottles on the bike, you know, and everybody puts some type of electrolyte mix in both. I mean, is that what you've seen? Yeah, that's typically what uh what I'll see riders do. Some riders are absolutely religious about uh, what drink mix they're going to use. Other riders right. will try a different thing every race, which I usually recommend against because you never know what you're going to get. Right. Um, but you see a whole mix. Exactly. But generally, they're scared of using so, water, and I think there are actually times where water is better, personally. I, lo- I love you, man. You're great. We, <laughs> we have to get together. So this, <laughs> this is my thought on hydration. So the general rule for hydration is this. So if you're inactive, the rule of thumb on a daily basis is half an ounce of water for every one pound of body weight that you weigh consumed every day. That's inactive couch potato person. If you are active, the rule of thumb is one ounce of water for every one pound of body weight consumed every day to manage a temperature pattern. So let's just talk about like water off the bike for a second and why it's important. So other than moving nutrients and toxins through your system, water regulates your temperature. So as you drink water, it circulates through you. You perspire and sweat. And in turn, your body regulates the temperature as you relate to different environments in your day so you can operate efficiently within those environments. If your water is low and you cannot regulate temperature pattern, your body will presume that that, that that's a certain amount of trauma that it does not want to deal with, like a life-threatening level. And so it says, all right, look, this guy's not consuming enough water to perspire and sweat correctly to regulate temperature. I need to figure out another way to do it, so I will adapt. As your body adapts and finds a new balance of homeostasis, it always hoards and collects things. What it will always hoard and collect is the thing that is most calorically dense, which is fat. In this case, fat is perfect because it is also insulatory. So now your body will start to hoard fat underneath your skin to act as insulation to regulate your temperature. So if your water intake is low, you will hoard fat. So how about that? Let's put a period in that for a second. So drink water. Drink drink lots of water. Number one. Now, number two. Here I am, a cyclist or triathlete, and I've I've loaded up my bottles with an electrolyte replacement mix, both my bottles, and I've stuck them on my bike. Now, I am concerned about my sweat rate. You know, how do I manage a sweat rate pattern so that I efficiently regulate my temperature so that I do not utilize wattage to control my temperature? So here I am cycling, and I, I take my first swig of electrolyte replacement mix on the bike before I start sweating. What will happen to those electrolytes? What what goes on? With a, when a cell is already loaded with electrolytes because it hasn't started sweating yet, and you slam some more at it. And then physiologically what happens is your body shuts down its ability to regulate its temperature. Like you, it's, the cells start to shut down because there's too many electrolytes floating in there, and you can't start to sweat correctly. So it's always water first to establish your sweat rate. Now, Trevor, I think you hit on that in the very beginning. You know, water is super important. It's like water first, establish your sweat rate, start to deplete your electrolytes. Your body actually needs them, and then you can replenish them. The yeah. other issue you can run into is, is osmotic pressure. Water always goes where there, there's a higher pressure, which is basically the concentration of electrolytes. So there if you, you hit your gut with a, a big electrolyte mix, you're actually going to pull fluid out of your blood into your gut to, to bring down the concentration. And that's why people, when they drink these concentrated uh, electrolyte mixes, often complain of bloating. Bloating and gastric, well, from the gastric heat, you're establishing a higher heat pattern in your gut as your digestive enzymes get a hold of it. So, yeah, you're absolutely correct. So I always tell my athletes, water first, establish your sweat rate, and then start to replenish with electrolytes. And the, I always, they always they say to me, you know, well, which one should I use? There's so many products out there. And I tell them, simpler, simpler is better. Like, you know, I love Scratch Labs, Alan Lim's company. I think that's great. Bonk Breaker, uh, Chris Frank and the gang over there, they've just come out with a new product as well, which is a fantastic hydration mix. So I'm all about them. Uh, and they're, they are proven in practice and founded in science for years, those two companies. So I think they're great. Yep. Uh, and I've seen athletes receive huge benefits. And if you want a bit more of a punch, you can take some sports legs 
uh, like maybe another four or five capsules or six capsules, empty them out into your electrolyte mix so that you buffer lactate a bit better if you're a high lactate distributor. Like if you can't manage that lactate, then then empty a few sports legs capsules into the electrolyte mix is a big help. But I think that's the water story. I think it's just I think it's so important to have that quick water conversation because so many athletes go out there with two bottles loaded with uh, some dense electrolyte mix and they can't figure out why <laughs> they feel like shit on the bike. Right. No, that's key. And and you look at where the 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 leaders in, in hydration are going. So your scratch nutrition, your your Osmo nutrition, some of those companies, they're they're really bringing down the concentration. It was what Gatorade was eight right. nine percent, and and now scratch and some of the newer products are more like four percent. Mm-hmm, three and four percent. Yeah. 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 Because, because people are realizing they don't need that much. Right. Right. Of. And I think it is important for an athlete to look up information about sweat rate. There's a good formula for it. So it's based on an hour ride time, weighing yourself before and after, determining what your sweat rate pattern is. And I think that's good, helpful information as well. I don't know the formula off the top of my head, but I know you can Google it and it'll pop up. Well, I'm sure you can find good calculators online. I haven't yeah. tried myself, yeah. but I'm sure you can. Like I mentioned before, we like to sort of uh, provide a couple a couple quick take-homes for listeners and it can be difficult to distill all this stuff, but best you can. Couple, couple quick things that you know tomorrow people can turn around and do, and and immediately uh, maybe feel and ride better. Uh, well, I'd say uh, quick tip number one: don't undereat. Like, don't be afraid of calories. And it's not a calories in, calories out thing. For an athlete, your your primary concern is about functionality and performance so the reduction of inflammation is super important and tissue repair is super important and that requires a nice caloric balance so don't be afraid of your food number one number two make sure that you hydrate correctly you know generally speaking off the bike it's one ounce of water for one pound of body weight consumed every day number three stay away from inflammatory foods no yeast no mold no gluten no refined sugars so no bread breads muffins bagels holy breads sandwich breads Focus on the one-ingredient starches like potatoes, rice, yams, oatmeal, oat flakes, oat puffs. Look at your starches. Ask them how many ingredients are in you, and if they tell you more than one, don't eat the damn thing. <laughs> uh, finally, stay away from the, the consumption of phlegm. Uh, that's code for dairy. There's not an athlete in the world that consumes any dairy because it adversely affects the utilization of oxygen and promotes a generous amount of gastric heat. And then promotes inflammation as it relates to triglyceride fat. For instance, if you're a diabetic or have diabetic tendencies, you wouldn't be consuming any dairy because it adversely affects triglyceride levels and HbA1c's. Uh, choose your proteins wisely. Know what proteins provide the best, the best performance input at what time of day. So poultry, moderately low fat, consume it at lunch. It doesn't do much else other than be a moderately low fat protein. Your uh, fatty fish and steaks should be consumed in the evening. Steak elevating hematocrit, which is so important because we all talk about our hematocrit numbers. Uh, what's yours? You know, you want to keep that hematocrit between 48 and 52%. At the 50% mark, you saw the water, the UCI assumes you're doping. So it's, it's, it's nice to have that 50% number because you're consuming fatty fish and red meat at night uh, and for no other reason than that. And uh, <laughs> hint, hint. <laughs> and and consuming the fish consuming the fish at night, increasing uh increasing your fatty acid consumption promotes a deep REM sleep. Your body releases more growth hormone. You burn more fat. Consider using the mash after dinner uh, if you've got a big ride the next day. And remember, if if using the mash in the morning again with your one egg or two, consume it two hours before you go train. Because if you consume it any closer, you'll have digestion on the bike, and you'll hunt me down, and and you won't like me much. Awesome. <laughs> that was brilliant. That was brilliant. Thank you so much. Big thanks to Dr. Phil Golia for joining us from Crete today. Lots of very useful tips and tricks and some things I feel like I can implement really quite quickly here uh, in terms of getting down to race weight, above all, safely. That is it for Fast Talk today. We'd love your feedback. Email us at webletters at competitorgroup.com. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, 
or Google Play. And while you're there, leave us a rating and a comment. We really do like those. Fast Talk is produced by Vela News, which is owned by Competitor Group. The thoughts and opinions on this podcast are those of the individual. That's it for Fast Talk. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.